Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. Watching a Gaither homecoming video the other night, I heard something that made me stop and think. I'm sure I must have heard it before, but this time it was like I was hearing it for the first time. I'm sure you must have experienced something like this for yourself in the past. It was between songs and as a filler when Bill Gaither told a story about a famous nun, one whose name we've heard many times. You've probably figured out that I'm talking about Blessed Teresa of Calcutta, more commonly known as Mother Teresa. She spent her life and her health serving the poor and destitute of India. As Bill Gaither told the story, he said that Mother Teresa was asked once, what would be the first thing that you will ask Jesus the day you arrive in heaven? Well, the person said that there must be many questions that she would want to ask, but what would be the first question she would ask when she looked at Jesus? She said, I suppose that when I see him for the first time, I will ask, you have a lot of explaining to do. Now, at first take, that sounds a bit impertinent, doesn't it? I don't know if I could be so bold and direct when I'm talking to the Lord. But thinking about it a bit, this dear woman, small of stature and incredibly dedicated to her life's task, with years of deprivation and hardship, serving the lowest and poorest levels of humanity, she'd seen so much pain, suffering and incredible poverty as she was sharing her heart with the person who asked her the question. The depths of her emotions, the culmination of years of sharing such sorrow and desperate need, her heart was full. Her need to help and bring some relief, incredible. If only she could have a better understanding of the Master's plan, have a more comprehensive understanding of his grand design, at least from Earth's perspective. Then she might better comprehend his ways. At that moment she could see only the terrible suffering. So while at first blush it might seem presumptive, I believe I can understand that her first question of the Lord would be, paraphrased, please explain to me as best as I might understand it why people had to suffer so much through no fault of their own. From the perspective of eternity, I'm confident that such questions lose their meaning. The Bible advises us that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But it was an interesting excursion for me to ponder these things when I heard Bill Gaither tell the story. Travel this life for a part of the family. 
Related during the filming of the video recorded during the homecoming visit to London, England. The concert was in one of the rooms of Westminster, a lovely setting to be sure. The audience was obviously British believers and the place was packed full, which of course is great to see. Over the years I've derived a tremendous blessing from these homecoming videos. I find strength and encouragement listening to these artists sing the great songs of the faith. Many times I find myself shedding a tear of joy or penitence as the music and the lyrics speak to my heart and the Holy Spirit uses the instrument of music to deal with my personal needs or shortcomings at that particular time. It was an added blessing to have the parenthesis of the story with Mother Teresa. In so many ways, God deals with us at our personal level of need, but in using different things. We only have to allow him to speak to us. For me, as I've indicated, relaxing in front of the television and watching these wonderful musicians and singers ascribe praise to our Heavenly Father in song conveys a mystical relationship that I can best describe as the Holy Spirit within me responding to the message and the song and the music as I am lifted to heights of worship and praise on my own. That would be difficult without the video and the concert encouraging me. I find them irreplaceable in my periodic worship opportunities in front of the TV.
his message for today, here's Senior Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee. Good morning. We are still looking at the Bible's perspective on worship that is acceptable to God and that is done in spirit and in truth. Last time, we ended our message by pointing out that the element of sacrifice is also an essential part of genuine worship. We want to complete our comments on this aspect this morning. Now, praise is the outpouring of adoration toward God by a thankful, redeemed child of God. But in addition to worship being a response to God's initiative and an outpouring of praise, a third element included in genuine worship is that of sacrifice. This aspect, of course, was central in the worship of Israel in the tabernacle and also in the temple. In fact, the very first instance where the word worship is used in the Bible, Genesis 22, verse 5, it is in the context of worship. It is in the context of Abraham preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command. Listen to his words to his servant. Quote, Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. End of quote. Notice, the offering was termed worship. Also, when David sinned by numbering the people of Israel and God stretched forth his hand with the plague, judgment was prevented when David built an altar on the threshing floor of Onan. Onan offered to give the land to David free of charge. But David responded, and I quote now, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. That's First Chronicles 21-24. Genuine worship costs us something, my friends, and it costs something that is precious to us. In the New Testament, the idea of sacrifice continues to be prominent in worship. But rather than the sacrifice of animals or things, it is the sacrifice of self which is demanded. Here again, the words of Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. End of quote. The book of Hebrews adds to this the sacrifice of the praise of our lips, doing good and sharing. In chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, verses 15 and 16, the author says, and I quote, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, 
that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. End of quote. All of these elements, then, are a part of genuine worship and goes beyond the idea of something we do only on Sunday mornings. However, there is one other aspect of worship that does in fact relate specifically to corporate worship, and it is that of proclamation, and it has to do specifically with the corporate worship of believers and the observance of the Lord's Supper. Paul says very specifically that whenever Christians partake of the Lord's table, they, quote, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's 1 Corinthians 11:26. Now the word proclaim may also be rendered declare or to portray. In a word, in genuine worship, when the Lord's Supper is observed, we actually preach the gospel through our worship. But now, to whom or for whose sake do we make this proclamation? There are four primary subjects. First, now not necessarily in order of priority, but simply for enumeration purposes, there are the believers themselves. We proclaim the Lord's death so that we might truly remember or bring to our minds in an immediate and spiritual sense the suffering of our Lord Jesus on our behalf. This promotes and enhances genuine corporate worship on our part. The second subject of the proclamation of our worship is the unbeliever who may have come in to observe the worship of God's people in an orderly, dignified, and spirit-led manner, which he outlines in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through The Apostle says in chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, that if proper order and decorum is observed in the public worship of the church, and, quote now, if an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. End of quote. There certainly can be no higher, greater, or more effective tool or means for evangelism than the genuine, orderly, and spirit-led worship of God by his people, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. A third subject to whom genuine worship is proclaimed is implied by the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul teaches that the church has been created by God, and then he says, and I quote now, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10, Paul says that a woman should be dressed properly while participating in public worship because of the angels. However, the fourth and most important spectator to our worship is God himself. He is not only the object of our worship, he is also the spectator and final judge of our worship. We sometimes approach worship as though it is God who gives or blesses us with what we do. In other words, worship is what God gives to us and we are merely spectators of his action within our midst. But friends, scripture give us an entirely different picture. God is a spectator. We are the participants or doers of worship. It is what we offer to him, not what he gives to us. The effectiveness of our worship then is not answered by the question, 
what did we get out of worship, but rather, what did God get out of our worship? It is not, did our worship make me feel good, but rather, did our worship make God feel good? Not, were we pleased with what we did, but rather, was God pleased with what we did? To be genuine worshippers, as one has said, and I quote, we must view ourselves as actors upon the stage who are being observed by both those in heaven as well as those on the earth. But most importantly of all, I would add, by God himself. Someone has said, and I quote again, Worship is becoming aware of God's presence and responding to his presence with verbal and active expressions of love and devotion. End of quote. This is in keeping with what we have already discussed concerning worship in previous messages. But what is even more important, it is in keeping with the word of God. For instance, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, has been called a classical example of worship. And it is clear in this passage that Isaiah worship of God is in direct response to God's revelation of his person and presence. Please listen as I read this fascinating passage. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy! Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. End of quote. Notice, God reveals himself. And as a result of that self-revelation, Isaiah becomes aware of God's awesome presence. Notice now how the prophet responds to that awareness in verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand that he had taken from the altar with tongs. End of quote. Clearly then, Genuine worship is a natural response to the revelation of the presence and person of God by God himself. It is becoming aware of the presence of God. If this is so, then it follows that we need to understand more clearly the way God reveals himself to us. We need to understand what it means to be in the presence of God. Now, I am indebted to a Bible scholar or scholars for much of the following study of the presence of God in the Bible. However, regretfully, I do not have their names in my notes, so I am unable to give them credit, but I'm sure God knows and will do that for me. I'm using this outline from my files in an attempt to reduce an extremely extensive study in just a few lines, an outline in fact, because without a doubt, my friends, the presence of God is one of the most foundational truths when it comes to genuine worship. We begin with the creation. The scripture opens up, in fact, with God being present in the beginning as the creator of the world. This creator God is preparing a place in which to place his created masterpiece, man. Once the process was completed, 
We read of how God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and communed with them in the cool of the day. What a beautiful picture of worship. Adam and Eve enjoyed the person and presence of God in a unique and beautiful way. Then it goes on talking about God's name. In the second book of the Bible, we read of the God who appeared to Moses and revealed his name as Yahweh, from the word to be. This word Yahweh describes God as the God who is present and living among his people. The people of Israel knew that God was present by the symbols of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and the glory of God that filled the tabernacle. But then God talks about his presence being localized. In other words, the God who was present chose to identify his presence in specific places. For instance, in the Mosaic tabernacle, then in the city of Jerusalem, then in the temple of Solomon. In each case, it is said that God's presence was there, present with his people, so that they might worship him. But then he also talks about a universal presence. The local manifestation of God's presence did not mean that God was only in one place at any given time. God is omnipresent means that the presence of God is everywhere, all the time, at the same time. God being omnipresent means that all of God is everywhere present, all of the time, at the same time. In Psalm 139, we read of the joy and security that comes when the believer knows that God is present. While in Amos chapter 9, we read of the unbeliever's terror and inability to hide from God because he is present as judge. Then we have the idea of God promising to be present with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of this promise of God, I will be with you. Paradoxically, then, the God who is always present has promised to be with his people in a very special, unique, and meaningful way. We have the truth also presented in the word itself. The Hebrew word for presence means literally before the face or under the eyes of all. In other words, when someone's gaze is fixed on another person, they are in each other's presence. And so we have a God whose face is turned toward his people. Our God, my friends, is present in the sense of looking on to be actively involved. The presence of God, then, is a key concept in the Old Testament. Through creation and by his very name, we need the God who is present. While God is universal, he chooses to localize his presence in the tabernacle, the temple, in Jerusalem, and in the New Testament, of course, in the believer, him or herself. And he does so to teach us how to relate to him. Yet, he lived with his people whenever they were or wherever they went in the Old Testament. The essence of worship is being aware, I repeat, of the presence of God. I say again, the essence of worship is being aware of the presence of God. Now, this is an extremely vital but mostly unknown truth or teaching of the Word. However, we'll have to wait to expand on this next time, Lord willing, because our time is gone for this morning. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things.
Savior comes from heaven, when His blessed face we see. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. The great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and our toiling will be in a moment Jesus Christ could come again